Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Harvey Johnson, can I speak to Penelope and... Is it true about Kim? Penelope? I was doing some prom. All right, so the minute that Lily Tyson, producer Lily Tyson, said that she wanted to do a show about gossip, I said, we have to play the telephone song from Bye Bye Birdie. It's actually called The Telephone Hour. But this is how I identify things. It's a telephone song. you got to do it. It's a great song. It, it sort of shows young people doing that thing. And, and it is that thing where they are not merely maliciously dumping on someone, talking about them behind their – they're kind of using this sort of net, networked form of gossip to evaluate a situation and, and chime in and offer their opinions. And so, yes, gossip has a pretty bad name, uh, but uh, maybe it doesn't deserve all of the badness that attaches itself to that name. So joining us now is uh, Frank McAndrew, a psychology professor at Knox College and someone who has extensive and I mean extensively. In fact, people were saying earlier today, almost too extensively, they were kind of gossiping about him, uh, extensively uh, written and published and researched uh, on gossip. Uh, and he is joining us now. Hi. Hi. Glad to be here, Colin. So um, let's maybe begin with kind of some kind of working definition of this term, right? We have to sort of decide what is and what isn't gossip. And when we decide that, it's going to tincture a, a lot of our opinions about it, probably. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I think most people define gossip as something that other people do, right? You, yeah. You're not a gossip. Mm. Um, when you're sharing information, you're expressing concern uh, or you're just saying something that has to be said. A uh, Gossip is what other people do. But for those of us that are gossip researchers, uh, there are usually a few things that have to be present for us to call it gossip. First of all, you're talking about a person. So you're not speculating about events or things that might happen. It's, it's about an individual. And it's about an individual that isn't present. So I can't be gossiping to you about yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be gossiping about somebody else. Thirdly, it's often information that we can use to make moral judgments or to make judgments about the character of the person we're talking about. And finally, by definition, it's entertaining. We can't stop ourselves. 
So we should think about why we can't stop ourselves and why it's entertaining. And one of the arguments for that is going to be that it's it was evolutionarily adaptive. The, the, it's set up in our wiring a long time ago on the grasslands of Africa because it had a particular use. And even if that use isn't quite as acutely obvious now, it's still there somewhere. And the God knows the wiring still is. So So react to that. Yeah, we haven't quite caught up with the changing times. And uh, things are irresistible to us because they're necessary for our survival in some way. So we can't resist sex. We can't resist donuts. uh, And we can't resist gossip for the very same reasons. Um, In our prehistoric societies, we lived our whole life in a pretty small group of maybe 150 to 200 people. And to be successful in that group, you absolutely had to know what everybody was up to. You had to know who you could trust and who you couldn't. You had to know who was sleeping with whom. You had to know who had powerful friends and who didn't. And people who didn't care about that stuff, people who weren't driven to stay on top of that just didn't do very well. They weren't good at maintaining alliances. They weren't good at attracting and keeping mates. And so we're the descendants of busybodies. Uh, The people that were good at this are the ones that were successful, reproduced, and here we are. So I've even read um, theories that um, that it's a, in a way related to the grooming behavior you see in, in monkeys and great apes uh, and that that's sort of a social cohesion tool. In other words, you're spending a lot of time like picking nits out of each other and you're just spending a lot of time and you're, there's a lot of nonverbal communication and, and bonding that goes on. But that really wouldn't be uh, as effective or as efficient as conversation would be. Once you get a larger group uh, of hominids, maybe you need a better way of establishing some of the things that you were just talking about. Yeah, and gossip serves a lot of different functions, and bonding people together is only one of them. But yes, it absolutely is like grooming. And uh, when you think about the stereotype of where do you go for gossip, right? The beauty salon, the barber shop. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not so sure that we're that far away from that. <laughs> Very good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, all right. So let's talk about some of the other purposes. It seems to me, well, my friend Bill has this theory that it's really one of our most primal tools for learning anything about life. Uh, in other words, we, we uh, tell and listen to stories about other people and the situations that they're in and their responses to those situations so that, A, we can rehearse our own behavior if we're ever in that same situation, or we can make decisions to either invite or avoid a similar kind of situation that, you know, really just just to, to know stuff, either you're going to directly experience it or maybe you're going to exchange information in the form of gossip. Yeah, your friend Bill is on to something. There are are different types of gossip, and the type he's referring to is called strategy learning gossip. So we're fascinated by stories of people who have survived a plane crash or a shark attack uh, because maybe by paying attention to what they did, if we're ever in that situation in the future, we'll know what to do. So it's kind of a form of mental rehearsal. And uh, one of the reasons we pay attention to celebrities, I think, is uh, young people in particular uh, focus in on people who are successful. You know, these people have made it. They're famous, they're wealthy, and maybe by paying attention to their lives and what they've done, I can do that as well. So, uh, yes, we do pay attention to other people to learn things. This is one of the same reasons we like to go to horror movies. Uh, we and Why do we enjoy scaring ourselves? We pay money to do it. Well, you're sitting there watching people uh, 
trying to escape the serial killer, getting through the haunted house, and it's allowing you to, you know, mentally rehearse it, but no risk. Right. And, and, you know, I don't think it has to be anything as extreme as a plane crash or somebody with a saw that he likes to use on people. Uh, I mean, I, I think we're going through it right now. You you have situations now in this complex a difficult to navigate environment of the pandemic where you're constantly stumbling onto social situations that you may or may not be prepared to for. So you walk into, I don't know, a bridal shower and a lot of the people aren't wearing masks and you're uncomfortable with that and you want to be wearing your mask. And so, I mean, that's the kind of story you might tell to somebody else and, and that somebody else might repeat that story to somebody else. And what's going on there are is sort of maybe people thinking, OK, if I'm in that situation, where, you know, not enough people are wearing masks and I don't feel comfortably socially distanced and I feel menaced. What do I do? Well, what did Sharon do in that situation? I mean, I feel like gossip kind of does that. Absolutely. And we're we are fascinated by COVID stories. You find out somebody has COVID. Where did they get it? Were they vaccinated? Uh, how we we desperately want to know the details uh, so that we can avoid that same situation. Yeah, I saw a brand new uh, sort of portmanteau coinage uh, today, Vaxenfreude, uh, and that's the, apparently the joy that you experience of somebody who didn't get vaccinated and then gets COVID. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I will admit it's kind of hard to feel sorry for people sometimes. Right. So, but let's talk a little bit about, about that kind of negative side, side of gossip, so, which I think Schadenfreude does um, rear its ugly head at that point. I mean, there, there are ways in which gossip is either destructive, either because we are repeating uh, calumnies and uh, attacks on people or relishing in their downfalls. But say, say more about that and whether that is, in fact, purely kind of a socially destructive behavior. Well, I, I don't disagree that gossip can be used as a weapon. You can use it viciously. You can make up false information. You can stab people in the back and destroy their reputations uh, for the selfish purpose of just getting ahead yourself or to bring down your enemy. So absolutely, gossip has that negative aspect. The problem is when people hear the word gossip, that's usually the only thing they think of. Mm -hmm. And if you're the person being gossiped about, you probably think it's going to be negative. I mean, that that it's bad anyway. But uh Gossip serves a, a noble social purpose in a way. If we're gossiping about a coworker who is cutting corners or stealing from the company or just slacking off, what we're really doing is trying to bring that person back into line. And we're gossiping about that person's behavior for the good of the group. It's not a selfish individual thing. One of the reasons we do what we're supposed to do is because we know people are going to talk about us if we don't. Right. So, I mean, in a way, what we're doing is reinforcing social norms or spelling out social norms that may not be spelled out in any other place. In any other place, but it seems to me that the upside and downside of that is controlled by the nature of the social norms. So, in other words, if you're using gossip to reinforce social norms and some kind of Margaret Atwood Handmaid's Tale dystopian scenario, then then you're not doing anybody any favors. Uh, but if you're just trying to kind of enforce the social norms where we don't hurt each other unnecessarily, we don't betray each other unnecessarily, we don't make each other sick with terrible diseases, then you're, you have a much more beneficent practice. Yes. And it does kind of socialize newcomers into the group. Uh, when you start a new job, there's a lot of things they don't tell you. How formally do you have to dress? Can you leave at exactly five o'clock? Are you supposed to hang around? Uh, how do you address the boss? And by listening in to what people are saying about other people, you figure out the rules. Oh, OK, well, I better not do that. 
So the other, you know, I mean, it's I was interested to see that um, the word gossip actually appears twice in, in Shakespeare, both in comedies, but uh, probably people's strongest association of Shakespeare and gossip. And I think we have to sort of question whether this is gossip, is Iago uh, and, and Othello. So if you're spreading rumors and the rumors are not true and you're spreading rumors specifically for the purpose of creating distrust I assume that doesn't really fit your your definition of gossip. Whether the information is true or not, I don't think is relevant to defining it as gossip. If I'm talking about somebody who isn't present and I'm sharing information that is not widely known, I'm gossiping. Whether that information is true or false doesn't change the fact that I'm still engaging in gossip. So I just have to ask, as somebody who's, and you really are pretty renowned as an expert in all this, does that make you, do you monitor your own gossip more carefully, or do you just understand that it's a natural human impulse that you don't have to be too worried about? Or how self-conscious has this made you about how you talk about other people in these situations? Well, Colin, I don't gossip. I express concern. <laughs> I share important information. <laughs> So, uh, but no, I, I it, it has not handicapped me in any way. I just don't think about it. I do what I do. And yeah, I don't worry about it. But I understand the question. I, I think if you think about it too much, you can become kind of paralyzed when you're trying to have a normal conversation. Yeah, there's also a way in which this has become, to use kind of an overused participle, gendered. Uh, there's a sense in which gossip is something that women do. Men talk about sports. Um, women gossip. Um, I know there's actually a fair amount of research uh, into this. What do we learn when we research the question? Well, um, men men certainly gossip. It isn't just a female activity. Men talk about other men and uh, who's going to get that promotion that comes up and why you think this guy is a jerk. And uh, so, yes, men gossip just as much as women. But the difference is women are more likely than men to use gossip in a negative, aggressive way. Now, that doesn't mean that women are just are nastier, more aggressive people than men. They just have a different style. Uh, if a guy is behaving aggressively, he's much more likely to come up and punch in the face or do something very direct. Uh, women engage in something that's called indirect or relational gossip uh, or aggression, where you try to ostracize people from social networks by spreading information about them, uh, planting information in a way that it's going to be hard for them to develop new uh, relationships. And women are more likely to do this kind of aggressive behavior than men are. Yeah, it seems to me, having uh, th through my uh, extensive clinical research of having attended a boys' school for six years, uh, that what men tend to do to enforce social norms is more likely to be to, to be to call one another out publicly or tease one another or taunt one another or verbally bully one another uh, in pretty public situations. In other words, if you think somebody's being uh, craven or cowardly, uh, it's probably you'd probably use another word for that that began with P and you would taunt that person not behind his back, but uh, to his face. That's sort of how men seem to want to drive home at least some of the social norms. That's right. Yeah. And that's why there's a difference between direct aggression, where you're confronting the person you're trying to be aggressive against, uh, versus indirect aggression, where you're aggressing against an individual that isn't there right now. All right. So um, I just had a flashback to boys' school. I have to uh, catch my breath. Um, so we're going to take a little break right now. Frank McAndrew is going to stay with us. We're going to be joined uh, by uh, another person writing right now about gossip on the other side of this.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. We're talking about the topic of gossip. Um, I have to say that this funny thing is happening today, which is as I was preparing for this show and reading a lot of the materials, I was also keeping my eye on Facebook. <laughs> this, this thread started up elsewhere on Facebook that I was just tagged in by one person where they're sort of gossiping about me in a very, very negative way. I mean, in a way I've never really quite seen before. And there's like a lot of people doing it. And I thought, wow, that's a strange thing to experience. But the internet uh, does... Uh, in fact, make things uh, different. All right. So um, we're just about to add to our conversation uh, Shayla Love, who is a senior uh, staff writer of Features Advice. I think we have to get her in. Yes, I think she's there. Um, and uh, also with us is Frank McAndrew, a psychology professor uh, at Knox College uh, and we and somebody who has written and published extensively uh, about the topic of gossip. Uh, so Shayla Love, uh, first of all, welcome to the, welcome to our show, Shayla. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, in Vice, uh, you wrote, we need gossip more than ever. So let's, first of all, actually, rather than have you just sort of make that case abstractly, you use the example of having had nightly gossip sessions kind of almost, I guess, pretty intentionally and and, uh, as, you know, as a matter of program with your boyfriend uh, and explain what the purpose of those uh, sessions are. Sure, sure. Yeah. So this is something that happened um, last year in the spring. I live in New York City and there was a period of several months because of COVID where the city was very shut down. So restaurants were closed, almost everything was closed and COVID was pretty bad in New York. So there was this sense that really you should just stay home um, as much as possible. So it was during this period when uh, me and my boyfriend, usually people with two very busy lives, were at home all the time. And you know, after six weeks, eight weeks, things start to feel a little boring. We enabled this nightly gossip practice, which was just something where we would say to each other, uh, like, what's the goss? Like, you got any goss for me? And we would each share one piece of, I would call it micro gossip. There wasn't that much going on about somebody that we knew or something that we heard one of our mutual friends. And again, these things were pretty small. It was like, somebody chipped a tooth and they couldn't go to the dentist to get it fixed because the dentists were closed because of COVID or, you know, like my sister's boyfriend's dad threw up when they were in the car together. Just these like little things that were happening in our daily lives. Normally we wouldn't pay much attention to them, but we really framed it as this sharing moment of like, let's just have a moment to gossip. And it was always, um, it was just something fun and silly that, that brought a little joy to our day. Okay. So let's go to the expert on this, Frank McAndrew. What, what do you hear in, in the description that Shayla Love just gave us? Well, hi, Shayla. I actually uh, talked to you when you were writing that article. I remember yes. it very well. Um, I think she's absolutely right. Gossip is entertaining. And when you take away 
so many of the other things that we rely on for entertainment. You can't go to the movies. You can't go out to a restaurant for dinner. You can't go out with a group of friends anywhere. You get desperate and gossip can always be there. And uh, Shayla's correct. The things that people would ordinarily be doing that would cause us to gossip about them dried up as well. So you had to be very careful in doling out these little tidbits uh, so that you didn't use them up too quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I want to talk also a little bit about something that, that Frank and I talked about at the be- beginning here, but I want to come back to it now. And that is like just, you know, to what degree this is just a life sentence for all of us. And so, although, and this is true, I've actually never watched an entire episode of Friends. I somehow rather knew <laughs> that there would be a Friends episode that would be absolutely germane to the conversation that we're having right now. It turns out there is one in which Rachel is trying to, he's being pressured to stop being such a gossip. So she is making uh, an affirmative effort to to, to not gossip. Uh, and it's getting harder and harder because she actually has something she wants to gossip about. So here's Rachel uh, with Joey, uh, and they're trying to work out whether or not they can gossip. Do you know something? Do you know something? <laughs> I might know something. I might know something, too. What's the thing you know? Oh, no, I can't tell you, and you tell me what you know. Well, I can't tell you what I know. Well, then I can't tell you what I know. Okay, fine. <laughs> you don't know. All right, then how about I go over there, and I will walk into Chandler's bedroom, and I will see if the thing that I think that I know is actually the thing that I think that I know. Oh! You know! And you know! Chandler and Monica? Oh, this is unbelievable. How long have you known? Too long. Oh, my God, Rach, I've been dying to talk to someone about this for so long. <laughs> All right, so maybe I should watch Friends, actually. That was pretty funny. So, um, uh, yeah, maybe uh, Shayla reacted to that a little bit. I mean, we talked about this with uh, Frank in the first segment, but um, there's a sense in which we're just going to do this, right? I mean, even if we don't want to do it, we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And something that um, Frank and I have talked about before, which I really resonate with, is that gossip is not inherently good or bad in itself. I think the reason why, for example, Rachel wants to stop from gossiping is this idea that it's a bad thing. It's bad. It looks bad for you. It's bad for other people. It's bad for your social relationships. But Frank's work has really shown that gossiping is a skill and you can be a good gossip or you can be a bad gossip. And good gossip is the kind of communication that brings you closer to people that you're intimate with. It's not something that you share with like every single person that you know. It's it's an intimacy facilitator. Um, it encourages people to both maintain their own reputations and it monitors the reputations of people around them. So as a social skill, it's something that can be really positive to everybody involved. And I think in this example, it reveals to you who you're really closest with and the most intimate with, right? Rachel and Joey are sharing that with each other because they're very good friends. Um, And that's a case. It's not like Rachel's going online to post on Facebook about Monica and Chandler. (laughs) So I, I think it's a, you know, it reveals a lot of the prejudices that people have about gossip, but it reveals a lot of the bonding that gossip can facilitate too. Yeah. So I have to now say that um, I I work at a company where our CEO, Mark Contreras, is a very noble noble person. I mean that. I actually mean that sincerely. He's a noble person. And so Frank McAndrew, one of the things that Mark wants is a company environment where there isn't a lot of gossip. He's very, very down on the idea of kind of workplace gossip. He doesn't think it's a a particularly good thing. Now, it's very easy to keep workplace gossip kind of under control right now in in the sense 
sense that the building I'm sitting in is mostly empty. It looks like some kind of post-apocalyptic movie set where people just walked away from their desks 19 months ago and never came back. But, um, you know, when there are people in the building, um, I don't know, what's the success rate of no gossip office policies or no gossip zones or stuff that people try? I think they're doomed to fail. You might as well have a no breathing zone. Uh, I, I just think it's so much part of who we are that we can't help ourselves. Now, I'm sympathetic with the goal. You don't want a gossip, uh, a toxic gossip workplace where uh, everybody hates each other because they've all been talking about each other behind their back and using gossip in a nasty way. And I think your boss is thinking only about gossip in that way. But gossip increases morale. It gives you something to talk about. And it isn't always negative. We can be talking about whether uh, Bill is going to get that promotion that came up and uh, weigh in on whether we think um, he's deserving of it or not. But it's not necessarily bad information about Bill. We're just discussing him and evaluating him, so to speak. Uh, And we might evaluate him. You said your boss is very noble. You shouldn't be gossiping about that. Uh, So, and it creates um, a bond. if I share information with someone, I'm telling them, look, I trust you with this. I think you're a discreet person. You're not going to use this in a negative, harmful way. If you announce to the work group, I don't want to be part of your gossip network, what you're really saying is I don't trust any of you people, and I don't really want to have an intimate relationship with you. And that's not going to win you too many friends. So, Shayla, one of the people who um, took a somewhat uh, benign attitude towards gossip uh, was W.H. Auden, which I had not realized. He wrote an essay in ter- in called in, in Defense of Gossip. So, Sheila, tell us a little bit about uh, how Auden saw this. Yeah. So, you know, Auden pointed out, I think, something we've been talking about, which is the fact that if you say that you don't like gossip, um, you're probably lying or you have an incorrect idea of what gossip is, that it can only be a bad thing that's, you know, spread online or talked about with a lot of people, where in fact, the rules of gossip are just that you're talking about another person to another person who's in that person's not there, right? Like you're talking about another person who's not there. So in that sense, we all do it and we all love it. So we might as well just admit that and then see what the creative interpersonal benefits can be. Something that I really love that Auden said is that um, he wrote, gossip is the art form of the man and woman in the street and the proper subject for gossip as for, for all art is the behavior of mankind. And it is something that if you, as I noticed through our intentional gossip practice last year, me and my boyfriend, it made us more observational. We really paid attention to these little things that happen day to day um, because we wanted something that we could share in our nightly gossip session. We were sort of competing who could have the best piece of gossip in this context where we were going out and doing nothing. Um, But it made us more observational. And it was almost like a mindfulness exercise, right? It was like, how can I pay attention to all these things around me and spark some intrigue into these mundane, routine, daily activities. Um, and because of that, there's a lot of creativity and observation and noticing of others that, that comes with that. And so that's what I, I really love that about that essay is it makes it really, um, you know, almost like anthropological and creative, a way to interact with the world and other people. Yeah, and I think he makes also the very powerful argument, I think it's right before that thing about the man and the woman in the street, is the the idea that art is kind of dependent on gossip, that, that art, because it's storytelling, because it's observation, um, uh, often about the human condition. Either the artist, the creator, would 
would have to rely entirely on his or her direct experiences and observations uh, of humankind or be enriched by various kinds of stories that are brought second and third hand through the medium of gossip. Anyway, Sheila, I think that's sort of the argument he's making. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, one thing that I'll just add, and this is something that Frank has written about, too, is that um, the people that we view in a negative light for gossiping, that can be sort of loaded as well. So like the people that we see writing about others and commenting about others that we that we judge tend to be women. Gossip has been a gendered criticism for a long time. There's even been, you know, these historical contraptions, iron cages with spikes worn on women's heads that are supposed to prevent them from gossiping. So we should really think about what it is that we're criticizing when we talk about gossiping and whether or not there are pieces of it that are really valuable and and why it is that sometimes we look down on it. So, you know, Frank, one thing that we haven't talked about so far, and it's something that I've only I've anecdotally experienced in kind of a stark contrast in my life. I grew up as an only child in a very, very small family. Uh, and so when my parents gossiped, they gossiped about outsiders, basically. Um, I am now part of a much larger family where the term gossip is used, uh, I think, in, a, in the kind of benign way that we're talking about, that one of the fun things to do is to sit down and kind of gossip, which is, in this case, means still tell stories about other family members. And you know how Jeff is and that kind of thing, or the latest thing that's happening with so-and-so. Uh, and and it's really, uh, I, I see it now as this very kind of nourishing process and one that seems kind of necessary for a big family, to, for a big family to function. People do have to kind of know each other's business uh, in order to be able to love them and help them effectively. And I guess also, I'm babbling here, but I also there's this sense that, well, ultimately, we're family. So even if we're telling stories about one another, I mean, it's not like for the purpose of destroying one another or cutting one another off. We're always going to be family. But maybe you could say a little bit more about but, but that family gossip idea. Oh, yeah. You got to keep up with your family members because <laughs> there's a whole other level of reasons to be interested in this. Unlike people that aren't part of our family, we're going to be judged by things that our family does, right? So if you've got a black sheep brother or somebody else in your family that's creating a lot of trouble out there in the world, this is going to come back to haunt you as well. And you want to keep tabs on what's going on with these other family members, if for no other reason than to protect yourself from um, other people gossiping about you because of something your relatives are doing. So yes, Okay, so as we close out this uh, section, I'm going to do this to kind of set up the final segment of the show, but I'd like to ask both of you about this. I mean, the other people about whom we gossip, about whom we exchange news and stories are celebrities, people whom we don't know. Uh, And Shayla, I'm assuming that when you and your boyfriend had your intentional gossip sessions, that they really weren't about things that Jennifer Aniston was doing, uh, you know, that they were about things of sort of real people, um, not that celebrities aren't real people, but you know what I mean, people of whom you actually have direct knowledge. I assume that's sort of where your your efforts went on those occasions. Yeah, they tended to be about people that we, that we knew in real life. But, you know, I have to say that with celebrities, um, it's very possible to have 
meaningful parasocial relationships with celebrities <laughs> these days, right? So it's like a one-sided relationship where the other person doesn't know you, but you feel as if you know them. And during during the pandemic, I think this is even more pronounced because a lot of us have been engaging with our favorite TV shows or you know our favorite yoga videos with YouTube instructors, things like that. And so I think that if my boyfriend and I shared a very strong parasocial relationship with somebody, that person would have been eligible for gossip as well. I It ha just so happens I don't think that we have that overlap. We are fans of different things. But in that case, I think that sharing gossip about somebody you have a really strong connection to, even if you don't know them, can feel the same. It can feel as stimulating or as intimate or intriguing um, as gossip about somebody that you know personally. So in our case, it was about people we knew. But if I, for example, heard a piece of interesting news about somebody and I was a fan and I knew that somebody else was a fan, I would share that piece of gossip just like any other gossip. Right. I should say that we're going to explain that term parasocial in the final segment. It is actually a term that I didn't know, let's say, on Sunday, but then I knew <laughs> on Monday. Uh, and now now every time I bring it up, uh, people use it exactly the way that you're using it right now. So, yeah, Frank, would you, you've written a lot about this, too, about sort of why it is we gravitate towards celebrities uh, to, to for gossip. Maybe you can say a, a little bit more about that right now. Sure. I think our fascination with uh, celebrities is kind of an accidental byproduct of the way our brains evolved. Uh, if you knew a lot about somebody in our prehistoric past, by definition, that was a socially important person to you. You wouldn't know a lot about somebody unless they were in your life and somebody you had to keep track of. Uh, so we evolved in a world there, where there was no mass media and there were no celebrities. Well, what happens now in the 21st century is we're constantly exposed to details about the lives of celebrities. And we know an awful lot about them. I'm betting that you probably know more about a lot of celebrities than you do about your next door neighbor. And even though we consciously know these people aren't in our life uh, in a physical way, our brain gets tricked into wanting to know more about them because we already know something. And so uh, I think um, we're taken advantage of by the way um, we evolved. But it does serve a, an interesting purpose in the 21st century as well. Uh, Colin, you and I have never spoken before today, but we could go out to lunch and talk about the death of Norm MacDonald or what Donald Trump is up to or some other celebrity. Uh, I think of them as friends-in-law. They're people that we know in common. And we can use that as a segue into a real relationship with real people in the real world. So uh, there is an upside to it. Yeah, I, actually, I was out of town last week. I was visiting a friend up on Cape Cod, and so uh, he set up a little dinner that was just uh, himself and his wife and me and, and a guy. We're all sitting outdoors at a picnic table, a guy that he knows uh, who's a writer, and we, we'd never met before. Uh, and it turned out that prior to going to this dinner, we had read each other's Wikipedia entries, <laughs> which I think is sort of the new kind of version of sort of, you know, a kind of gossip. You can get a certain amount of information uh, that you need about another person if, in fact, they have a Wikipedia entry or or kind of something comparable to that. But I also feel like, and, and I'm going to date myself by this, but I'm sure there's a, a better contemporary example of this. But Sheila, I think another reason we'd like to know some certain things about celebrities is 
that it informs our understanding sometimes of their art. I mean, Fleetwood Mac had an album called Rumors because, in fact, they all, they were all kind of changing partners back and forth with one another. And uh, I'm old enough, and I don't know whether Frank is or not, but to remember Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Joni Mitchell. And I mean, you sort of needed to know all that stuff to at least to understand one layer of the songs. Or it could be argued that you shouldn't know any of that stuff because it'll overtincture your understanding of the songs. But it's it's there's a way, Shayla, I think, in which art and culture create an appetite to know more about the people behind it. I think that's totally true. And, you know, I wrote a profile recently about Gail Stever, who's a psychologist who studies fandom. And she's been studying Michael Jackson fans, Janet Jackson fans. She studied Josh Gruber fans. Like she she goes out and she asks people, why are you drawn to this person? Why do you love their music? Why do you love their art? And a big piece of it is that they feel that they somehow personally resonate with this person, that they're similar to them, not just in the music that they make, but in their qualities, their personalities, their interests, their dreams, their weaknesses. Um, so people want to find that personal resonance even outside of just the things that they produce or that they make. And I think that instinct, uh, both in fans, but just in general, to want to know what people are like and what's similar with you and what's different than you, um, you know, just that's something so intrinsically that we desire. I mean, I can feel that just as you move about in the world, you you want to know those things about other people. It's why people love reality television or, you know, like behind the scenes interviews um, with their favorite artists. So I, I totally agree. And that's definitely a piece of it in, in just wanting to hear about somebody's personal life. Okay, we're going to take a break in just a second. But before we do this, I want to just stay with you for a second, Shayla, and ask you, I mean, this, maybe you could just very specifically, let's say somebody's listening and they think, you know, the whole thing that she's doing with her boyfriend, that whole thing, that intentional structure they set up, that sounds like it could be good and kind of constructive and a good way to talk without necessarily veering into the danger lane. So I don't know, if somebody wanted to do that, explain exactly what it is that you and your boyfriend arranged that you would do and explain it in a way so that somebody else could set up a similar thing. Yeah, I would just say at the end of the day, maybe like as things are winding down, doing the dishes after dinner, getting ready for bed, um, it's just this moment where somebody says, you know, it can be one or the other. Do you want to hear some gossip? Right. (laughs) And then it sort of sparks this little fun, like this is a special moment. Let's sit down and really exchange these two morsels of information. And again, these pieces of information could be very micro pieces of gossip. I think once mine was that our neighbor had ants or something, and I had heard <laughs> them talking about this in the hallway. So it could be it could be very small, but I think to to make the moment intentional, it's really about carving out a specific time for it, sitting it down, and not having it just be something you mm. say on the phone or text to each other, mm. but you really sit down face to face and share this intentional piece of information about another person. Mm. And it you know it's not going to be like a a bombshell moment, right? It's just going to be this fun little interaction where you share something that the other person knew and that until that moment you didn't know, right? right. It's like this novelty. Um, and so then you have the moment and then you and then you go about the rest of your day. But I think just that moment of connection and, and novelty and intrigue is, it just, it's super fun. I, I think it really sounds like a great idea. To, to say the obvious, if it were a bombshell, you would have told him in the first minute. Uh, exactly. So uh, <laughs> this is obviously secondary or tertiary kind of stuff. Frank McAndrew is a psychology professor at Knox College and legitimately one of the national experts on gossip in this country. Shayla Love is a senior staff writer of Features Advice. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about this term, parasocial. 
All right, so I'd like to thank uh, the people behind the show today, Kat Pastor, our technical producer. I wish I had a great piece of gossip about her. I can't really think of one. Uh, same goes, and Lily Tyson is a complete enigma to me. I, I, I wouldn't even begin to know how to gossip about Lily Tyson, but she, in fact, is the originator and producer of this particular episode. So thanks to both of them. Uh, we're now going to talk about this term. You might have heard it come up uh, just a few seconds ago uh, in connection with celebrities, and that's kind of how we're going to talk about it here. Uh, Amanda Kerberg is joining us, an adjunct media studies faculty, a member at uh, Arizona State University. This term, parasocial, and we're going to use a, maybe a specific uh, case study uh, for this. But uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. So I just learned this term parasocial on Sunday. As usual, I'm kind of late to the party, right? This term has been around (laughs) for a while. It has. It's been around for a really long time, but I think you're right. A lot of people just learned it recently. It's been kind of social media's new buzzword. Uh, Twitter is already super fatigued of it. (laughs) Um, But I think anybody who researches this stuff has been really psyched. Like it's kind of a crossover episode between reality and academia for us. (laughs) But parasocial goes back to the 1950s. And uh, they were looking at the way that fans felt about their relationships with celebrities, even if those relationships actually had no interaction. So if you think about the 1950s, what are opportunities to interact with celebrities? You're thinking like fans might write a letter. So you're probably not getting a letter back from like Marilyn Monroe or uh, Cary Grant, right? (laughs) So this became a term for a relationship that happens basically in the head of the fan, that it is definitively one-sided, Um, it's a perceived intimacy, but doesn't actually include any real interaction. Um, so it could be with, uh, celebrities, it could be with fictional characters. You could even have a parasocial relationship with Flo, the progressive lady or the (laughs) Limu Emu. How did you know? How did you know about those? (laughs) Um, but you could also have a parasocial relationship with politicians, with historical figures. You know, it's all about your internal sense of kind of that emotional connection and your, identification with them. But what's really key to it is that even though it's one-sided, what the studies have shown us is that it has all the hallmarks of a real relationship. So it's really powerful. It's emotional. It's influential. Uh, Parasocial breakups can feel like real breakups and, and parasocial relationships can really influence you to make um, important choices. So like, for example, if your friend or your mom or your cousin reminds you to register to vote, maybe you kind of don't take it that seriously. But if Ariana Grande registers you to vote, then I mean, reminds you to register to vote, then like you and 10,000 of your friends crash the Florida state system. Right. Or, yeah, if Nicki Minaj tweets about vaccine hesitancy, as we're seeing right now, uh, that can have a very powerful influence to a lot of fans who may have a parasocial connection with her. Right. We don't need to go into the nitty gritty details, but Nicki, Nicki Minaj was tweeting, uh, tweeting pretty graphically yes. <laughs> about an yeah. anecdotal possible reaction somebody might have had uh, in, yeah. in the area of their uh, naughty bits. 
uh, to a exactly. vaccine. So, um, which makes it great gossip. So we're back to where we started. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I think the other thing that happens, and I think a great example right now is with the comedian John Mulaney. I'm yes. a I'm a big fan of his. You're a big fan of his. But yeah. we're a big fan of a guy who would do these stand-up specials. I almost pulled a clip, but I, I just discovered it because of the way that he uses his face and points and stuff like that. It doesn't work <laughs> on the radio. But, you know, he would do a lot of material about his marriage and and particularly about the fact that they didn't want children and here's why they didn't want children. Yes. He does a very funny thing about a real estate agent who just keeps showing them things and going, well, you want this for maybe the nursery, you know, <laughs> and, and, and all this stuff. And then a whole series of things happen. He happens. He goes into rehab. He gets out. It turns out he's also he's having a relationship with the, his marriage breaks up. He's having a relationship with the actress Olivia Munn. Now it turns out they're having a baby. And people are feeling legitimately betrayed as though, I mean, perhaps illegitimately (laughs) betrayed, (laughs) as though the relationship that they had with John Mulaney has somehow been trampled on. So say, say something about that. Okay, so I think, I mean, ultimately, it just goes back to, I think what my mom would always say is the the gap between your expectations and reality is what's going to kill you. So I've been a fan <laughs> of John Mulaney, you know, long enough to uh, have participated in, in fan groups on Facebook and social media. And I really got to watch how the references that fans made and shared and uh, really created meaning around about John Mulaney kind of moved away over time from a lot of the actual jokes themselves and the text of his routines to just like references to his relationship with Anna Marie Tendler and their dog Petunia. So his star persona, which, you know, when we talk about that, we're not talking about necessarily John Mulaney, the real human, flawed, complicated person who exists in the world, right? We're talking about like this symbolic star persona that we have created out of everything that's publicly available about him. Um, which is is tough because, you know, those two can get mixed up. But when we talk about John Mulaney, the star persona, like so much of that persona ended up built around his not wanting kids, his having this really successful relationship with this, um, you know, strong-willed artistic wife and their dog Petunia and this kind of idealized life that a lot of fans, I think, really connected to very strongly, especially probably millennial women. And so having that then very might feel like a a very sudden switch you know it's just in the sense of reminding ourselves that parasocial relationships feel like real relationships and real breakups i think i'm trying to feel like let's be generous with fans that uh you know it may seem strange we don't know john mulaney in real life uh but you're still having kind of an emotional reaction that you might have if, say, a couple of your friends decided to break up in a friend group. Like, I've seen there's this sense of, like, well, who do we go with now? Like, we love John, but we also love Anna. Anna gets Petunia. Does she get us, too? Like, there is still, you know, there's an emotional reaction there because there was an emotional stake and an, uh, an identification there with Mulaney. Right. I think there's also, um, I mean, you're, you're already you know, touching on this, but there's sort of a modeling question, too. So I, I think, yeah. you know, if you watched Mulaney's stand-up on not having kids and on Petunia and stuff like mm-hmm. that, um, you, you, if, in fact, you were sort of maybe some somebody roughly in the same age cohort as him and you were struggling with this question or wondering about it at all, you could say, well, he's obviously not some big loser, you know, and <laughs> and yeah. he, here's how he's worked it all out. And and 
very possibly that's a reasonable way for me to approach my own life. Uh, and so and and that's kind of the way we use gossip, too, at times. Uh, and, and so when he takes a sudden turn, a 90 degree turn. Uh, you can sort of understand why people, they'd feel jeopardized also because maybe they were making some decisions based on who they thought he was. Absolutely. Yeah, it could be an identity threat, too, um, because we can yeah, understand ourselves through our relationship to and our identification with celebrities. So, yeah, it might make you question yourself and your own choices if you see that someone who you thought was kind of um, a real strong connection point for you on those choices, then suddenly, yeah, changed again apparently to us from our outsiders perspective yeah completely did a what feels like a 180 you know it's an interesting thing too because there's a there's a similar but also somewhat different set of parasocial relationships that i think sports fans have mm-hmm. with athletes you know yeah. and and it's it's been on my mind over the last few days because i don't have the kind of granular command of the Mulaney situation that you obviously <laughs> do but but you know Olivia Munn used to date Aaron Rodgers and there was this whole thing and and Aaron Rodgers is now engaged to Shailene Shailene Woodley Aaron Rodgers for people who don't know is the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers and within the world of the Packer fan base there was a question of well if he's not playing well or he's being a jerk or he's holding out on his contract you know is it is, is it legitimate to cherche la femme to say oh well that's because Olivia's been distracting him oh you my know? gosh and, and so there're like these complicated value systems coming into play right because yes. we, we use athletes also to do a different kind uh, probably not so much of modeling but wishful thinking about ourselves yes no that's that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day is that like celebrity gossip is it can be escapism it can be identity play but like reality tv you know celebrity culture is an endless well of ethical dramas so it's a way that we negotiate and share values using stories so um yeah, I think that's a great example of that. Uh, speaking of sports figures, though, there's, the studies about sports figures have really been interesting in parasocial research because they're more likely to interact with fans on social media as kind of part of the culture of being a sports celebrity. Um, so what we're seeing now is that in in the age of these interactive technologies that we're all hooked up to all the time, right, that they've really kind of collapsed the boundaries that we had before of what means parasocial and what's social. Because if you have the potential for interaction and direct interaction with a celebrity on Twitter, does that mean your relationship with them is still parasocial or is it, you know, just the same as your relationship with your cousin or your friend from college that you haven't directly interacted with in years? It's the first one. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to be clear, just so we're all clear about that. Well, there's like, there's kind of a, you know, like, well, if if uh, Ryan Reynolds retweets me one day, does that mean we're in a social relationship? Yeah. So there's like, you know, that that potential right. for no, interaction. Look, I, yeah. I, wrote, I wrote a tweet today praising Adrian McKinty, who's this terrific crime writer whose work I love. Yeah. And he, he liked it immediately. It doesn't mean, yeah. and I, I was thrilled that he liked it, but, yeah. but we don't <laughs> know each other. With that, yeah. But that means we have to kind of redefine what we think of as what constitutes interaction that defines a relationship as parasocial or social, which is really interesting. I mean, Absolutely. I think that the structure. Okay. Yeah, the uh, well, structure. Oh, go ahead. No, I just uh, actually, Amanda, you're a lot of fun and I would love to talk to you all day. But actually, the show's <laughs> over. So <laughs> so there's that problem we have to deal with. Right. Uh, Amanda Kerberg is an adjunct media studies faculty at Arizona State University. Thanks to everybody who helped today. Here's some gossip. Cat Pastor has a parasocial relationship with Flo from Progressive.